Well, good morning from College Park Fishers. We launched two weeks ago with 499 people in our first service. It was amazing. I uh, think our merciful father wanted to keep our heads in the right thing by not having 500. He wanted 499. So a bit like uh, water skiing when you're expecting to go 20 miles an hour and you're going 40. We're holding on. Things are going really well. And you know, one of the realities, looking back 30 years at College Park and looking 30 years forward at College Park Fishers is just that every week a portion of scripture has been read and then whoever was preaching that day stood up in the pulpit and took that one portion of scripture and one man preached it and at the beginning it impacted tens of people and then it impacted hundreds and today it's impacting thousands of people. One message from one man impacts us because God's word is alive, it's living, it's active, it's transformative, and it gives us hope for the future. And the future is the next hour, right? Right now, as we move into this sermon, there's so much hope because God's word's alive. So let's turn to 1 Peter 2, 2 through 12. 1 Peter 2, 2 through 12. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up to salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This is God's word. Today is a special day, and I'm glad that you've made time to join us. When you came in this morning, you should have received a name tag, put your name on it, and uh, it's designated in terms of uh, how long you've been attending here. And I just want to get a sense of that this morning. Let's do this together. If you've been at College Park Church between 20 and 30 years, would you stand and remain standing? 20 and 30 years, would you stand and remain standing? All right, very good. Good. All right. If you've been here between, ten, stay standing, stay standing, there we go, so between 10 and 20 years, if you would stand, 
between 10 and 20 years. Wow. All right. Very good. Stay standing. Our family came between five and 10 years. So if you came during that era, would you stand between five and 10 years? Would you stand? Very good. Glad you stayed with us. Good. And if you've been here five years or just today, we're glad you're here. Why don't you stand? Huh? Very good. Thank you. You can be seated. If you're not here, you can stand. Hey, listen, anniversaries are important, are they not? They're important because it gives a chance to do a couple things. It gives a chance to celebrate, to remember, and then also to reflect, to think about where have we come from and what has God done? Now, let's be honest, 30 years, it's important, but at the same time, on the scale of human history, on the scale of church history, that's a pretty small time frame. When I was in um, Edinburgh, Scotland, I was getting a tour of St. Giles Cathedral, happened to um, here a guy was given some instruction and some information about various stained glass windows in that historic church. That's where John Knox preached and the Scottish Reformation began. And um, he explained various um, reasons as to why certain stained glass windows were put up. And then he, he missed one. So we got to the end of the tour and I said to him, what, what about that last one over there? He goes, I don't even talk about that one. I'm like, why? He goes, because it's too new. I'm like, oh, okay, well, what year was it made? He's like, ah, like 1800s. I was like, oh, okay. So for, for Scotland, 1800s is new. For us, that's like historic in the United States, right? And for us, a 30-year history is not that significant in terms of the scale. And yet, at the same time, here's the thing. It's a miracle, folks, that for 30 years, a bunch of sinful, snarky, self-centered people have hung out together, called it church, and they've gotten along. That's a miracle of God's grace, right? It's a miracle that for eight years you put up with me. It's a miracle that I put up with you. It's just, <laughs> were it not for the Holy Spirit, this whole thing would collapse. I've said it often, I'll say it again. The church is beautiful, but she's a mess. She's a beautiful mess, a mess held together by the Holy Spirit. My aim today is not to celebrate us as a church. That is not my intention. Instead, my aim is to celebrate the amazing grace of God the grace that has sustained this church through all kinds of seasons. There's been beautiful seasons that Pastor Steve DeWitt talked about where church grew by 100 people on one weekend. There's been other seasons where 100 people left on one weekend. There's been challenges where we thought things were going really well and things that we wondered, are we even gonna be able to open next Sunday? There's been seasons that God has seen us through and some of you've been around for those great high seasons and you've been around for those significant low seasons and yet through it all, what we see is that God has been faithful over and over and over and so it's good on a day like this just to stop and look back and remember the amazing grace of God to us. As well, it's a good time to be reminded as what makes this church special. Not special because we're a church, not special because we're anything different than any other church in this community, but what is God's story that he's done here? What, is, what are the things that he's blessed? And then what are the things that we need to remain committed to for the next 30 years? I mean, my, my prayer is that at my retirement party, 30 years from now, when I'm 74, yikes, when I'm 74 years old, that these things will still be true about us. And what are those things? Here's what my prayer is, here's what I see in 1 Peter 2, that we would be, as we have been, a word-craving, Christ-exalting, grace-experiencing, gospel-proclaiming, and obedience-living people. I think that's what's marked this church, that's what's marked you as a people, and my prayer is that's what will mark us for the next 30 years. 
I chose 1 Peter because it was written 30 years after Pentecost. It was written to a group of people where the rumblings of persecution were beginning. The government was beginning to turn against them. Nero was on the throne, and Peter writes to a group of people who have become exiles even though they've never left their own homeland. They'd become sojourners even though they still lived in the same city. What had happened is they'd become increasingly counter-cultural. This book is written to help those followers of Jesus know how they ought to navigate this hostile culture. And by the way, sometime in 2016, towards the second half, we're gonna start a study in 1 Peter, try and see if we can learn what Peter said to those believers and what he says to us. Chapter one in 1 Peter is mainly focused on some heavenly realities about what God has done for us in and through the work of Christ. And then in chapter two, Peter bridges the spiritual and practical realities helping these followers of Jesus not only to know who he is, but then to know how they should live their lives. So what do we see here? It's five characteristics. Here's number one. This people is a word-craving people. And that's what I want us to be. That's what we have been, and that's what, what I want us to continue to be as a church. That we would be the kind of people who don't just read the Bible, but the kind of people who hunger after it, who long for it, who want to know it. In verse two, Peter says this, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that you may grow up to salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. So in verse two, he uses this metaphor of newborn infants. And he uses this metaphor to describe this craving that he wants them to have for the word of God. He wants them to be as passionate about the word as a newborn infant is for milk. I mean, if you've cared for an infant, if you're just around them, you know that a newborn baby is relentless in his or her passion for milk. Think of the last time you fed a baby. When hungry, a baby will cry loudly, piercingly, and without regard for timing or convenience. A baby doesn't care where he or she is. She wants milk and she wants it now. When hungry, a newborn will relentlessly search for milk from a pacifier, a finger, the back of his own hand, or in the case of our twins, the forehead of his brother. <laughs> and Peter says that a believer needs to be that passionate about the word, there should be a, a craving for the word. He says they are to long for the pure spiritual milk. In other places in the New Testament, the word milk is used for elementary teaching, but in this context, Peter is not referring to the Bible as elementary teaching or elementary truths in the Bible. Rather, he means that the word of God is spiritual nourishment. And the idea is that there's a leaning into the word, a longing for it, a craving for it, because, according to verse two, they can then grow up into salvation, which means by leaning into the word, by craving it, they become more and more like Jesus. That the ultimate aim of our salvation is not just heaven. Heaven's the context. The ultimate aim of your salvation, if you've received Christ, the ultimate aim of God's plan in your life is to put you face to face with Jesus and you're like him for all of eternity and that never changes, no sin, no sorrow, no pain. You just like him forever and ever. And growing up into that likeness is what the word of God helps us to be and to become and to embrace. As well, verse three says, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Here's something else that the word of God does for us. And not only provides the spiritual nourishment to grow us up into Christ-likeness, but it means that as you encounter Christ in his word, 
you taste over and over again of the goodness of God. The idea is as you linger over the word, as you hear a word taught in a Sunday school or a discussion around the small group or you have your own time with the Lord or you hear a sermon that's preached, as you receive that word into your soul, you are tasting of the goodness of the Lord. You are receiving his mercy, you are receiving his grace and you are reminded over and over and over again that yes, grace is my story, this is my song and I love Jesus with all my heart, all my soul, all my mind and all my strength so this craving for the word is to be the characteristic that marks a people. From its very beginning, this church has been marked by a commitment to the word. That's why one of our core values, our second core value, is the authority of the word. You know why that's important? It's important because we believe biblically and philosophically that the power for you to change doesn't come from my opinions, doesn't come from our programs, doesn't come from some kind of skill or ingenuity. We believe fundamentally that your ability to change comes from the authority of this book. And that my role week in and week out, I'm given the privilege to unpack and slice and dice this word because this word gives you life. Pastors come and go. Elders come and go. It's the word of God that remains. This church is a living testimony to the fact that when the word of God is preached, it becomes a preserving agent in a body. This church has been a people marked by a craving for the word. In 2007, when I got the call to consider candidating here, I began doing some background research on you as a people, and my mentor, Dr. Jim Greer, was also Kimber's mentor. I asked him about this church, and he said, Mark, honestly, College Park Church is my favorite place to preach. And he'd been all over the world preaching. And I said, why? He said, because when I go there, there's a, a leaning that the people have towards the word, the sense of a, of a longing, a readiness for it, a, a yearning to hear it. And, and I found that to be the case. In fact, I, I found that when I came here, we heard it especially in the old sanctuary, we've talked about it before, something that I called the College Park mmm that when a really good point was made, and, and I've made a lot of them, that, <laughs> that there is this, this mmm that happens as you savor and retain that. Now we can't hear it so much in the larger space anymore, which is really sad, so you gotta be louder, please. And, and, but it, it's marked us as a people. From the very beginning, this church has been marked by a craving for the word, and can I just encourage you to keep craving that word? To realize that without this word, we will fail. Without this word, we won't be the kind of church that God wants us to be, that you come Sunday after Sunday ready to receive with an open Bible, a ready mind and a heart that says, God, I am hungry to taste you in your goodness over and over and over again. Maybe even today, just to retaste the goodness of the Lord as you think about his amazing grace to you. Have you tasted that the Lord is good? Then receive his word with gladness because of the goodness that he is to us in it. Secondly, this church and second, first Peter 2 are marked by a Christ-exalting orientation. Not only a people who are word-craving, but also Christ-exalting. Verse 4, I love this. As you come to him, meaning Jesus. He's then described, Jesus, he's described as a living stone. Paul, Peter is going to use um, a, a temple metaphor, Israel-like language, to capture the essence of the ministry of Jesus and this life as the people of God. 
He calls Jesus a living stone. Notice in verse four, a living stone who has been rejected by men but in the sight of God chosen and precious. That's important if you're a persecuted people. It's to be reminded that, that Jesus was rejected but God was, loved him and he, Jesus was chosen. So you can be chosen and loved and still be rejected in the world and that's the model and that's what Jesus was like. He says, then verse five, you yourselves like living stones. Jesus was just called the living stone in verse four, and now he says, you are like living stones. So you're, there's a, a, a resemblance of Christ in you as the church is gathering together. You're being built up as a spiritual house. Here comes this, this temple-like language. To be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So, so notice this, this church is being built up and it's made up of not bricks and mortar but of people who are living stones who now are described as a holy priesthood and we, we offer spiritual sacrifices to God and we do it all through Jesus Christ. And then he quotes three Old Testament passages in verses six to eight. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. What does that mean? It means that when you stand before a holy God and he says, why should I let you into heaven? The answer on that day is because I know Jesus. And that name is not only the forgiveness of your sins, but it's also the covering from the wrath of a holy God. Verse seven, so the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, and there's gotta be some of you in this room, I'm so glad you're here, struggling to figure out what does it mean to believe in Jesus. Here's the deal, Jesus is the dividing line because the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. In other words, the one who they murdered and put in the grave, he's alive. And the one who you don't think is king is. And the one who you don't think is Lord is. And one day you'll stand before him. And so the invitation today is for you to put your faith in this king of kings and lord of lords before it's too late because he's coming back and only those who have their sins covered by his blood are going to be safe from his wrath on our deserving guilt because of our sin. And the stone of stumbling and the rock of offense, they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. So this is a people who are Christ exalting. They love Jesus, that's why our mission statement is igniting a passion to follow Jesus. It's why our first core value is the preeminence of Jesus. Because we are a people who have been changed not by Christianity in general. We have been changed by specifically Jesus of Nazareth. He is the cornerstone, the foundation, the beginning. He's everything of the Christian life. In my first sermon series at College Park Church 2008, I walked you through the book of Colossians. For those of you who were here, we called it the core. The point of that sermon was this, you don't make Jesus the core, he is the core. Deal with it. It's kind of a snarky way to say it, but it's true. You don't make him Lord, he is Lord. The fact of the matter is that Jesus is the center of everything. I chose that particular book because I knew of this church's history of its focus on Jesus. I know people who told me, look, I came because of Kimber, I came because of the teaching, I came because of the fellowship, but I stayed because I met Jesus. There's a vision of Jesus in Colossians 1, a vision of the centrality of Jesus. Let's read this together, shall we out loud? He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, 
all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For those of you who've been around this church for a while, you know that a statement or a phrase has been part of sort of the DNA of this place, which is this, that the main thing is to keep the main one, namely Jesus, the main thing. You know what our elders want for you as a congregation? We want you to look like Jesus. We want you to be able to stand before him and that the sum total of your progressive sanctification, your becoming Christ-like, will be because you've been around a people who were word-craving and who were Jesus-exalting. Here's the third thing. In verse nine and 10, we find these people are grace-experiencing. He uses language in verse nine that's just stunning. It's almost like he's talking to the people of Israel with these kind of words that he uses. He uses that sort of metaphor of the people of God in Israel. You are a chosen race. You're a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. It's unbelievable language. Look at verse 10. And then he says this, once you were not a people, but now you are, you might think he would say, but now you are a people. Once you were not a people, but now you are a people. No, that's not what he says. He says, once you were not a people, and then he says, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. These people had received God's unbelievable grace. They had received mercy that they did not deserve. What had characterized God's exclusive love for the people of Israel has now been extended through Christ to people who are non-Israelites. As the people of God, then they belonged to Jesus. He had bought them, he had purchased them, he had rescued them, he had saved them. They were his, and what's amazing is that they belong to him, and yet they don't deserve any of his affection. Do you realize that? I mean, you're here in this room, and God has been so gracious to you, and you don't deserve any of it. This church was planted in 1985. Do you remember where you were in 1985? Do you know what was going on in 1985? Ronald Reagan was just elected as president. Mikhail Gorbachev was just elected as general secretary. Nelson Mandela was still in prison. Coca-Cola changed its formula to New Coke. That didn't work out so well. Back to the Future was the highest grossing film. The first Nintendo game console was released. And you know the song that was running around the United States in the world? We Are the World was taking the world by storm to raise money for famine in, in Ethiopia. That's what's going on in 85. Where were you in 85? You know where I was in 85? I was in eighth grade. It's me in the middle, just so you know. One of the shortest guys in my class. Stunning white coat, isn't that? That's, that's, that's awesome. Double-breasted, pink tie, man. 1985, eighth grade. Two years earlier, I'd sensed God's call to the ministry for many years. Ever since my earliest thoughts, I knew God was calling me to be a pastor, but I wrote it in the front leaf of my Bible in 1983 and said, God, I'll go wherever you want me to go. I'll do whatever you want me to do. Just let me declare your word, and I would have never thought or dreamed that I'd be right here with you in Indianapolis. And 
And I look back on my 44 year life and I see grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. Went back to our last church last weekend, I celebrated 50 years. I just see God's grace upon grace upon grace. And I know you can look at your life, you see the same thing, don't you? You shouldn't be in this room today, you shouldn't be here today. God preserved you, protected you. Oh, there's some hard times, even some things in your life you can't even fully explain, like I don't even know what that season was about. You wait till you get to heaven and then you'll know. But in the meantime, all you need to know is that God was behind it all and he brought you right to where you are today. He brought this church to where it is today, that we are a grace experiencing people. We were once not a people, but now we are God's people. Fourth, we're a gospel proclaiming people. Go back to verse nine, we skipped over a part After saying that you're a people for his own possession, he then puts the word that in it, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. In other words, you've received all this grace, not just to store it. You've received all this grace, not just to consume it. You've received all this grace, not even just to celebrate it. You have received this grace to do all of that and then to open your mouth and proclaim. And what are you to proclaim? It says here in the text, you are to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. In other words, you live on planet Earth to let people know, I am not my own, I was bought with a price. You you live on planet Earth to let people know, I have a king and he's in heaven and he rescued me from myself and you gotta know him. That's why you're in your neighborhood. That's why you're in the place of work that you're in. That's why you're in the school that you're in. That's why God has allowed you to climb the position that you're in in life. That's why hardship and sorrow come so you can platform the gospel. We are a people for God's possession so we can open our mouth and tell the world of the beautiful story of God's grace. That's why we're here. That's why this church is here, to be able to make that message known and to make that reality something that is proclaimed all over the world. Tonight at our Fresh Encounter service, we're gonna pray and we're gonna baptize 35 people. You need to come tonight, you'll be blessed as you hear story after story after story as people proclaim the excellencies of a God who called them out of darkness into the marvelous light of the cross. Whether it's at North Indy, whether it's Fishers, whether it's Brookside, whether it's Caspian or Southeast Asia, whether it's Nepal or India, our mission is to proclaim the glory of God. That's why we're in the world and you have no idea how God might use your witness or the witness of this church in someone's life. So don't give up, don't quit, keep proclaiming the excellencies of his grace. I think it was on Thursday I received an email through our just standard email box from a man who lives in Michigan, he wrote this. I've been witnessing to a coworker at my job for the past two years and I've been using your podcasts on the series of Romans lately. This coworker has been listening to your sermons each at least two to three times, sometimes four times. Poor guy. <laughs> That's, the email got my attention then. He writes, recently I confronted him and asked him if he understood grace. He said yes. I then asked him, what's keeping you from receiving Jesus Christ as your personal savior? He then told me that a few days earlier when he was talking with his wife, they both prayed and received Jesus as their savior. 
I want to thank you and continue to use your ministry of the podcasts. I listen to them too and have been growing in my faith as a result of them as well. You see, God's grace is worth proclaiming and you never know where it's going to bear fruit. But we do know why we're here. And that is to make known the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Finally, this text calls us to be an obedience living people. This final characteristic is in verses 11 and 12 and is something that we all need to personally consider, especially in light of our rapidly changing culture. I'm sure for those of you who are charter members of this church, you could hardly imagine the kind of moral and societal issues that we face today. And oh my, what's it gonna be like 30 years from now? I can tell you this, it's not gonna get any better. We live in what some call a post-Christian culture, I've begun to call it a pre-Christian culture. Verse 11 and 12 says this, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. So it's not that they've left their homeland, it's just that they've so, the culture around them is so changed that they are like exiles, even though they've never left. And what does he tell them to do? To abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. That, that day of visitation is one of two things. Either it's A, when God comes in judgment, or B, it's when God comes in salvation. We don't know which of the two it is. Regardless, it means that when God comes, that there's a reference point in people's lives that they're like, I know some people who are followers of Jesus, and even though I said terrible things about them, they, they still, they're still righteous people that... There's a people who are pursuing Christ-likeness. Peter warns them to be very cognizant that there are passions within their own hearts even after they come to faith in Christ. There are still passions that are, characteristics, that are characteristic of a broken culture. And he warns them, grab a hold of those passions and push them out. That this inner battle over what's gonna rule and control your life is a real one and the followers of Jesus are to resist this normal and sinful desire that dominates our culture and is lurking within our hearts. So what is Peter calling them to do? What's he calling us to do? He's calling us to be an obedient people. This is where the text becomes very personal and extremely applicable. I said at the beginning that it's amazing that any group of people could live together for 30 years and make it as a church. And I just wanna say publicly that for those of you who've been here at the beginning and you've made it all the way through this and you have faithfully followed Jesus and you're old, God bless you. And I mean that. We need godly old people who make it all the way to the finish line with 60 years of marriage and 70 years of following Jesus who walk their way limping and hurting to the finish line and say, I will follow Jesus until my very last breath. We need people like you. We need people like you because there are lots of body bags on that trail of people who didn't make it. I'm grateful for godly elders and pastors who have faithfully followed Jesus. Look, we're not a perfect church. 
I mean, you're here, right? <laughs> I'm here. And yet, you know what? I'm thankful for godly men and women who made this day possible. And that opens a, a door for a pastoral challenge. Can I just remind you that your godliness matters? For a young man, there are churches in this city and around this country and maybe even this church that need you as an elder someday. Your parents won't always be the leaders of the church and we need godly young men to rise up and say, I'm gonna follow Jesus and I'm gonna do it even better than my parents did it. And your parents will look at that and go, you go, you go. They won't be mad at you, hey, stop, stop being so godly. Well, they, they, will, they will cheer you on to the finish line. Make your parents look bad in terms of your righteousness. <laughs> Come to church and people are like, you are so much more righteous than your dad. Your parents will applaud. We need godly young women who will cherish womanhood and realize the beauty of what it means to be a godly woman who fears the Lord and puts on 1 Peter 3 beauty, a beauty that doesn't fade and says, I'm gonna follow Jesus and follow him all the days of my life. I'm gonna resist the tide that's around me. I'm gonna be a different kind of woman in this culture and I'm gonna make Jesus my ultimate desire. We need young women who will say, that's what I wanna be like. Without obedience, the gospel is gutted of its power. Without obedience, the gospel is gutted of its attractiveness. Sometimes people come up to me and they say, Mark, what can I do? And they don't mean like serve, they mean like, what can I do personally? And my answer, invariably, sometimes grabbing the lapels of someone's shirt or their coat is to say, just be godly. Stay off the agenda of the discipline committee, right? <laughs> Just walk hard after Jesus, follow hard after him. And you know why I say that? Because grace is too lovely, the cross is too costly, and eternity too real for the followers of Jesus to mess around with disobedience. Without a vibrant witness in this community, at this church and other churches made up of godly men and women, the gospel will not go forth in this city, and so therefore we need godly men and women to say Christ is my prize, obedience is my treasure, the word is what I crave, grace is what I've experienced, and I wanna tell everyone about it because I love Jesus. God has been very kind to this church for 30 years. We don't deserve any of it. And what my hope and what my prayer is is that we would be the kind of people who are word-craving, Christ-exalting, grace-experiencing, gospel-proclaiming, and obedience-living people, that we would be that for another 30 years, we'd be that for another Sunday, we'd be that individually, corporately together, so that when Jesus comes, he finds a bride ready for him because these people have treasured Christ to the very last moment of their lives. Let's be that for another 30. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your mercy and your grace to us, which is far beyond what we could ever deserve. And moments like these remind us that we are 
um, a people who could have never made it apart from you. All of us have a story, a record of failure, a record of sin, and yet a record that's been wiped clean by the blood of Jesus. So we, re- we rejoice in that today and take great joy in what it means to be a people who are, have become your possession. It's unbelievable. So make us a righteous people. Make us a word-craving people so that the name of Jesus could go forth in this community for another decade or three or a hundred until you return. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.